For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Well, good morning, Dragon Bodhisattvas. Uh, thank you so much for being here, sharing the Dharma together, uh, manifesting our single dragon practice body in the cloud uh, and in our Lincoln Square Zendo spaces. So I'm hovering, hovering above uh, the Lincoln Square Zendo in my personal Zendo on the second floor of this building uh, because I woke up this morning with a scratchy throat and took a COVID test and it was positive. So I'm sequestered in my uh, apartment, <clears throat> but I feel fine. My throat was a little scratchy, still is, but otherwise so far so good. Ah. Uh, However, it did. I'm, this is not the Dharma talk I was planning to give, but that's kind of cool. Anyway, yesterday was the official Earth Day, in case some of you noticed. Uh, and so we'll honor Earth Day at our service today and during our work period. So during service, we'll chant some excerpts from the Mountains and Waters Sutra. And then uh, after this Dharma event, Dharma talk event, and then we'll have a 20 minute work period. And there's a option to touch the earth through working in the backyard garden at this space. And Kathy uh, will be leading that. So thank you, Kathy, very much for volunteering, stepping into the soil in the backyard. Uh, some people may have noticed that the entry to the Zendo is in the backyard, in the back door uh, here in Lincoln Square. And the backyard lilac tree is full of fragrance and blossoms. So that's a great setting to talk about the Vimalakirti Sutra. <clears throat> There's even a little chapter on fragrance, which some of you might have read. Uh, I'll say a little more uh, about the sutra. However, uh, since it is Earth Day, or Earth Day weekend, and this, this Earth Day celebrates the land that nurtures us ceaselessly. So I thought I would offer uh, a Chicago land acknowledgement. And wherever you are in your home, if it's not in Chicago, I know at least Mark is not in Chicago. I don't know where everyone else is, but I'll just say this. So Chicago is located on the ancestral, unceded homelands of the Council of the Three Fires, the Ojibwe, the Odawa, and Potawatomi Nations. Many other tribes, such as the Miami, Ho-Chunk, Menominee, Sac, and Fox, also have called this area home. 
the Chicago region has long been a center for indigenous people to gather, trade, hunt, farm, and maintain their family ties. Today, one of the largest urban American Indian communities is in the United States, in the United States, resides here in Chicago. Members of this community continue to contribute to the life of this city and to celebrate their heritage and practice traditions and care for land and waterways. But this land that is the city of Chicago has always been and remains an important indigenous place. So let us honor and thank indigenous communities past, present, and future. If you come to Chicago or frequent Chicago, you know that everywhere is evidence of this native presence, even though they were driven out in the mid-19th century, for the most part. Uh, The names of the streets, the geography of the city, the angles of some of the streets uh, are all intertwined with this history. When I think of Earth Day, I think, well, perhaps this is a legacy of the American Indians who knew our destinies were intertwined with the earth. And Kamala Kirti also demonstrates that all of our destinies are inconceivably intertwined. Since we're on screen, I'll screen share. So this is my Potawatomi grandmother, who was the baby in her family. And this is her sister with a wig on. My Aunt Jo, who fled Chicago, whose ancestors fled Chicago into Canada. And they were really cool, cool women. That's all I can say. Uh, Maybe someday I'll talk about them further. But these are all our grandmothers. All intertwined. So in thinking about Earth Day... I thought it would be kind of good to enter non-duality from Earth Day. And I really apologize because I know that many of you are much more knowledgeable about these things than I am. And I'm sorry if I repeat myself uh, or give you redundant uh, information. But uh, I checked out the EPA website about Earth Day. Environmental Protection Agency. We actually have one. It works imperfectly. Uh, But it said this, that the first Earth Day was in 1970, and it was established, and the EPA was established on December 2nd, 1970, so some months after the spring celebration of the first Earth Day. And the EPA was established under the administration of Richard Nixon. Maybe not our favorite president, but somehow that did happen. And the website, the EPA website says this, it may be hard to imagine that before 1970, a factory could spew black clouds of smoke into the air 
or dumps tons of toxic waste into a nearby stream, and that was perfectly legal. They could not be taken to court to stop it. Now, some of those things are still perfectly, imperfectly illegal and imperfectly legal. We're still spewing stuff into the environment, but there's still some effort uh, to protect the environment from a governmental perspective, from unlikely sources. Uh, And Earth Day was established by a Wisconsin senator, Gaylord Nelson. I mean, what a great name, Gaylord Nelson. Um, And Gaylord Nelson worked with, like, the head of the United Auto Workers to establish Earth Day, as well as with uh, peace activists and Republicans. So kind of amazing that we have this, this possibility still. So, you know, today we're concerned with uh, climate change and global warming and the difficulties in the world. But even 50 years ago, these problems were brewing and there was some attempt to address them. And hopefully that will continue. The first uh, director of the EPA was this guy, William Ruckel's house, another Republican. Another great name, Ruckel's house. Uh, And this was the first EPA director, and he was instrumental in banning DDT. And I grew up with DDT. I grew up in Southern Florida, and there were a lot of mosquitoes. And the smoker would come by at night spewing a little um, trailer attached to trucks, which was spewing DDT into the environment. And we'd ride our bikes behind it. <laughs> you can believe that. <clears throat> Ruckel's house also was, uh, was also famous, I think, for what happened with him. Oh, yeah. He was also ended up in the Department of Justice uh, in the Attorney General's office and resigned when Nixon tried to uh, get him to fire, along with some other people, to fire the special prosecutor for Watergate. So it's kind of amazing how times change and they don't. So even in Vimala Kirti's time, uh, there were also some problems in the world. And Vimala Kirti... A theme for Vimala Kirti is the willingness to go anywhere, maybe even to follow the DDT trucks around, uh, do anything to support the well-being and healthy development of living things. This person, of which all of you are, we go into the swamps into the muck, into the ocean, into the mountains, and reach out to the suffering. Like sometimes Vimalakirti's hand goes and takes an entire world system in the palm. We think that's just Vimalakirti, but this is, this is what we do in our way, in our family style, in Soto Zen.
And it turns out in the Vimalakirti Sutra that this very suffering that forms, it's this very suffering that forms the path, our path to our bodhisattva vows, uh, to manifesting awakening in our minds, in our everyday minds, in our everyday homes, in our everyday world, filled with garbage and lilacs. So I thought I'd share a snippet from the Vimalakirti that addresses this question that is time-honored in our practice of Buddhism, which is, what is the way? How do we live in this world of toxicity and delight? So, you know, in case you aren't tuned into the Vimalakirti Sutra frequency, as many people of Ancient Dragon, we've been like harmonizing with Vimalakirti as part of this practice commitment period, but I know probably everyone isn't on that program here, at least explicitly, didn't sign up for it. Uh, but Vimalakirti is this kind of carousing, playful, engaging, wealthy layperson who kind of... Mm, upends the idea that the great practitioner is some bald-headed ascetic who doesn't get involved in the world. Vimalakirti is recognized by Buddha as a great practitioner and teacher and bodhisattva, even though he might look like somebody who operates a hedge fund. Not sure. So, uh, so this is the story of all these meetings with Vimalakirti and discussion of practice. And there's a great exchange in the chapter on called the Family of the Tathagatas. And there's a great exchange with Manjushri, who's this wonderful, supremely attained bodhisattva, embodying the deepest of wisdom and insight and this layperson, Vimalakirti. And uh, Vimalakirti says something like, uh, what is, or Manjushri says to Vimalakirti, what is the way? See if I can find it. Um, Yeah. The crown prince, Manjushri, said to this layperson, Vimalakirti, Noble sir, how does the bodhisattva follow the way to attain the qualities of the Buddha? And Vimalakirti replied, Manjushri, when the bodhisattva follows the wrong way, then she follows the way to attain the qualities of Buddha. (laughs) The wrong way. So this is the path we're on, the wrong way. You know, you go down a street and it's like wrong way and you're already stuck because you've already turned the corner. So uh, so this little chapter has this dialogue 
And uh, here's some ways that Vimalakirti elaborates the wrong way of a bodhisattva, of a true bodhisattva. The bodhisattva might follow the ways of the rich, yet they are without acquisitiveness and often reflects upon the notion of impermanence. They may show themselves engaged dancing with harem girls, yet cleaves to solitude, having crossed the swamp of desire. He follows the way of the dumb and incoherent, yet having acquired the power of retention, is adorned with eloquence. (laughs) Follows the way of the outsiders, without ever becoming an outsider. Following the ways of the world, yet reverses all states of existence and follows the way of liberation without ever abandoning the world. So this goes on. And then there's a reversal and Vimalakirti asks a question to Manjushri. Kind of comes out of the blue in some ways. Manjushri What is the family of the Tathagatas? (laughs) Manjushri says this amazing thing. Noble sir, the family of the Tathagatas consists of all basic egoism, of ignorance and the thirst for existence, of lust, hate, and folly. And it seems that Fimalakirti might have been a little shocked by this. Because he says back to Manjushri, what do you mean? (laughs) What what do you have in mind when you said that? Uh, That the family of the Tathagatas consists of all basic egoism. I thought we're supposed to get rid of the self, right? Uh, And Manjushri says back to Vimalakirti, uh, one who stays in the fixed determination of the vision of the uncreated is not capable of conceiving the spirit of unexcelled, perfect enlightenment. So this is sort of Manjushri's specialty of sitting in the middle of unexcelled, perfect enlightenment. Uh, But Manjushri kind of casts that away and says, nope, You can't just sit in this uncreated, unconditioned realm on your cushion in some exalted place. You have got to go back into the mud of our created life, our existence. So Manjushri goes on and says, one who lives among created things, which is all of us. So you could say every single thing we encounter is created. Everything we love, everything we don't love, everything we think, feel, it's all this created fantasy. Uh, However, one who lives among created things in the minds of passions. So like, you know, there's some minds. What were those like in Lord of the Rings? The dwarves were like going into the minds, you know? So we're like these miners of passion Uh, without seeing any truth is capable of conceiving the spirit of unexcelled perfect enlightenment. Noble sir, flowers like the blue lotus, the red lotus, the white lotus, the water lily, and the moon lily 
do not grow on dry ground in the wilderness. So that was kind of the typical habitat for Buddhist practitioners. No, flowers don't grow there, but they grow in the swamps and the mud banks. Just so the Buddha qualities do not grow in living beings, certainly destined for the uncreated, but do grow in those living beings who are like swamps and mud banks of passions. Do you ever feel like a mud bank of passion or a swamp? I have. Yeah. Uh, Likewise, as seeds do not grow in the sky, you know how sometimes you're in samadhi and you're like flying around in this great blue sky? No. The seeds of awakening don't grow in the sky. They grow in the earth. So the Buddha qualities do not grow in those determined for the absolute. Those who are grasping at prajnaparamita. They grow in those who conceive the spirit of enlightenment after having produced a Sumeru-like mountain of egoistic views. (laughs) So this is a great aspiration. But we don't even have to aspire to it because every day in our everyday life, I think we create a mountain of egoistic views because that's sort of what the human brain will do. Fortunately, it's the perfect place for awakening and cracking open our hearts of compassion. Uh, And then Manjushri goes on and says, uh, yeah, Vimalakirti, through these considerations, one can understand that all passions constitute the family of the Tathagatas, just as noble, sir, Without going out into the great ocean, it is impossible to find precious, priceless pearls. So likewise, without going into the ocean of passions, it is impossible to attain the mind of prajna. You might think otherwise, bodhisattvas. You might think otherwise, that if I just get rid of all that, then finally we've got some good prajna going on. Or my practice is really good. And Vimalakirti is like, I'm in the mud with you, babies. So this is Vimalakirti's way. And uh, I encourage you to think about what is your way. Because there is a warning label attached to this. That you don't need to go out and conjure up any extra passion. But the skill to be with the passion, to sit with the passion, to not get caught by it and not push it away, but be fully intimate and informed by it isn't easy, but it is very easy to go over the edge. So, you know, Vimalakirti and Manjushri, they've been practicing for countless kalpas before they could hang out easily in the passion. Uh, And perhaps some of us have as well. Maybe all of us have. But it's just good to think. Don't just throw away the precepts. Uh, On the other hand, uh, 
I would like to say a little bit about our times because, you know, there's some sense of like, we're surprised sometimes like, oh, these times, you know, they're so bad. But these times of swords and maladies, they're in the sutra as well. So uh, after this little discussion with Manjushri, Vimalakirti says this, and I think this speaks to our time, even though Vimalakirti was writing almost a couple hundred, couple million years ago. It's probably true before that, but it says here, the true Bodhisattva, they demonstrate the burning of the earth in the consuming flame of the world's end in order to demonstrate impermanence to living beings who are convinced about permanence. And consider this, you might be saying, I'm not convinced about permanence. I know impermanence. So think of the most precious thing in your life and get rid of it. Then see how convinced you are about permanence. But these bodhisattvas, during the short eons of maladies, Eons, the short eons, what is a short eon? We'll find that out later, maybe. During the short eons of maladies, like pandemics, they become the best holy medicine. They make beings well and happy and bring about their liberation. During the short eons of famine, they become food and drink. Imagine that. Somebody going to some place plagued by famine, and they transform into food and drink. There actually are people who kind of do that, you know, who bring food to places where there is no food, even if they risk their lives to do it. During short eons of swords, they meditate on love, introducing uh, nonviolence to hundreds of millions of beings. In the middle of great battles, they remain impartial to both sides. So one thing I will say is I want to read a footnote from Thurman's book. Thurman's introduction, footnotes, and glossary are great. They're worth reading even if you don't read the sutra, if you're into footnotes. But I was one. I looked at this footnote about the short eons of swords and maladies, and it talks about kind of the a scheme uh, of three periods of time that are part of the Buddhist scheme of evolution and devolution of the world. Uh oh! I hope I'm on the evolution end, right? but we could be on the devolution part. It says a great eon, a Mahakalpa, consists of four eons. Each contains 20 intermediate eons. Our world lasts for 20 of these intermediate eons. And at the end of each intermediate eon, except for the first and 20th, three periods of time occur during which various disasters the fall human beings of that period. The first is a time of swords, 
which lasts seven days, and people go crazy and murder each other. The second is a time of sickness. That lasts seven months and seven days, and humans are stricken with plagues. The third lasts for seven years and seven months and seven days, and there is drought and extreme misery of starvation. <laughs> wow. You know. So, in our human realm, of course we work for the well-being of everyone, but also I don't think we can escape our destinies of swords and maladies. Uh, but we can still care for the world. And uh, I think I'll just end with something that Ruckelshaus said in a speech. He said, behind the issue of environmental protection, we can unite every American where no person is an adversary and no person is an antagonist. If every one of us will adopt the single truth that I can save the earth, we will realize how much we can achieve together. So Democrat, Republican, capitalist, politicians, activists, those we love, those we don't love, we can all leap behind the duality into the realm of the inconceivable, which is really just the realm of true caring, of true love, true compassion. And it's possible, this is our bodhisattva vow, even in the time of plague and war and injustice, in our time of swords and maladies. Um, and we meet the swords and the maladies from this other place that is open and spacious and connecting. Uh, that is peace. That's my hope. That's my inspiration from Vimalakirti and Earth Day. And thank you all very much for listening to me uh, during my time of malady. So bring forth your responses, bodhisattvas. And I know that everyone's going to have time or many people will have time who are participating in this practice commitment period to talk a lot about this sutra but I thought I'd wend it into Earth Day in our life today. So, Here in the hall, uh, since I probably can't see your hand, you might just start talking and you might say your name too, and I'll, I'll try to make you visible on the, on the camera. And then online, you can either raise your hand or, or use the raise hand function. I have a response. Uh, thank you, Hogetsu, for your talk. I enjoyed it very much. It um, triggered something in my life, as you were talking about your grandparents, your mothers, grandmothers. Um, my aunt was Eula Bingham. She died a couple years ago. And she was an EPA director under Carter. And her specialty was she did research in toxins. So when she was in that position, 
she put a lot of focus on workplaces and whether they were safe and examination of toxins in workplaces. Mm. But the reason I think about her is that, um, okay, so I grew up in Kentucky, so did she, a generation ahead of me. I felt a lot of pressure to be what a woman is. Kathy, will you speak up some? Pardon. I felt a lot of pressure to kind of fit feminine uh, expectations or expectations of women. I'm sure she felt it much more than I did. Um, But her personality was one of um, something made sense to her. She just pursued it. She kind of blurted things out. She was very blunt uh, and she had a great sense of humor. Um, And and I enjoyed her in our family reunions because we have a bunch of very conservative people and she was the opposite, but she, her personality was such that she was able to work and get at common understanding. Uh, I'm only saying this to say in our work in general as bodhisattvas or bringing up things that are good for the environment I think we have to go outside our comfort zones and um, get comfortable being somebody who says things that are unexpected or presenting ideas that are unexpected or that are not conforming to the norms. Uh, And she is a wonderful example in my life. Uh, uh, She was a character. uh, And she was um, effective in generating discussion around things she had in mind, even if people wouldn't have shared all of her ideas. So um, I appreciate your talk, and it makes me think about what we can do to um, focus on the environment and move our generation to be more aware of what we need to do. Well, thank you for sharing your aunt with us, Kathy. She sounds like a perfect Vimala Kirti herself, you know, able to just kind of be unbound and present. But somehow I wondered, you know, like people could at least hear her or were open to her. And... Mm-hmm. Right, because I think she also shared a lot of the values that they had. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was just interpreting some of them in a different way or bringing up other things that they might have thought of as being important. Because mm-hmm. I know that, Kathy, I think you come from some people who are farmers and people of the earth. And I'm sure, like most people, if they were really looking at the toxins and their impact, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't probably like think it's a good thing. Most people, you know, there might be a few who do, but uh, we probably have more in common than we don't. And I think Vimala Kirti is helping us find those intersections skillfully. Thank you. I'll just mention that I don't know if Patrick is on uh, online today. I don't see him, Tygen. Uh, anyway, just that we have a member of our Sangha who's in the practice commitment period who works for the EPA. Mm-hmm. So um, we're connected. Mm-hmm.
And, you know, some people work for the EPA that I know find it very difficult. (coughs) Excuse me. That, you know, there's a lot of regulations. There's a lot of anything that happens in an organization. But still, there's these people who are willing to deal with that in order to take care of our planet and to fulfill the mission of caring for the world. And so sometimes we have to like deal with like dings and hassles uh, to get, to take care of things. Yeah. Does anyone else want to share something before we move along? Is that Eve? Yeah. Eve. Hi. Eve. Hi. I hope you feel better. Um, to Thank follow you. up on, on what Kathy said, I, I, um, if people haven't read Strangers in Their Own Land, it's a book by Arlie Hochschild, who's from Berkeley, and went to hang out with people in Louisiana um, to get their perspective on, on um, the, the ecological problems in, in Louisiana. And, and it's a great book um, and underlines what Kathy was saying about the need to go across across um, ideological differences. And I really appreciated what both of you said to honor the people that have, uh, the, the recent work that's gone before us, because sometimes it does seem really daunting, um, you know, now that we're more aware of climate change and what in fact, you, you know, humans can, the, the damage that we can uh, wreak. Um, and I'm from Pittsburgh. And so for me, the Clean Air Act, you know, impacted my life. That was in 1963, and that's why I, that's why I saw the buildings, and I, I guess I did too. I, I saw all the buildings in Pittsburgh go from, or a lot of them go from black to beige when they clean them up. And I heard stories from my mother about people having rings of soot around their noses. And in the 50s, she worked in Denora, where a lot of people died um, after an inversion um, made the pollution you know, stay, stay on with, on the ground. And um, so anyway, I really appreciate the work that, that, that other people have done um, so far. Yeah. Thank you, Eve. It's so, it's an amazing thing that it's so easy for us to focus on because negative things are just much more available to us, the way our brains work and our cognition works. But to realize how many people who are nameless and unnamed and unseen are working in ways to care for the world. And, you know, even though we know it's all messy, it will always be messy in our world, I believe. But how, how else could we live if we didn't have a swamp? So all of this is intertwined. Any other bodhisattvas? I can't see the room, so please. Mm-hmm. Jan? Hi, Jan. Hi, Hogetsu. Hogetsu. I'm really, a, I think it was a very inspiring talk. I liked it a lot. And I, I, um, <laughs> but, but lately I have uh, become to disbelieve uh, Martin Luther King's statement that the arc of history leads to, I don't remember what, um, 
uh, justice. The arc of history leads to justice uh, because um, we're we're in a state in the world right now where injustice constantly is increasing. Uh, at least that's my opinion. And um, and so you know, I wash a plastic bag and put it away for the next time I want to use it. Uh, even the so-called one-use plastic bags, I wash them and put them away and I use them again. And it, it's so futile when you consider the gyre in the middle of the Pacific. I think there's two there and one in the Atlantic. And you see the piles of plastic garbage that are just, you know, in landfills everywhere. And, you know, I'm not trying to affect the arc of history leading to justice, which, like I said, I don't actually believe in anymore. But I've come to think that my practice is for today and it's for now. And I'm not looking beyond uh, what my effect is going to be, except for the people I'm dealing with now and in my life at the present. So, uh, you know, in my imagination, people, I guess, my monkey brain, people say, oh, you're just wasting your time. And I want to say to them, well, that's my practice. That's the way I do it. And um, I don't have to worry about wasting my time or affecting history. It's my practice. It's my practice to try to stop uh, nuclear power plants. That's just my practice. That's right. I'm doing what I can. Uh, you know, I'm maybe more than I can. And, um, you know, I have a, a, a son now that's living with me that I'm doing rehab with. I'm doing his rehab, actually. He doesn't get around much. And, you know, I've given up part of my practice on nuclear to take care of him. And I have a, another friend whose dementia is increasing and I'm taking care of him to the best of my ability. And it all seems, uh, it, 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 it kind of seems like a dead end. And I'm saying to myself and to everyone else, well, that's my practice. Take it or leave it. It's what you got. So um, I think that um, I just want to thank you so much for this talk and um, <laughs> for the reinforcement of my practice. Well, thank you for your practice. You know, we're all heading towards the dead end together. And I hope this supports you. You know, I didn't mention this, but you prompted me to read this just to to underscore how you're in good company. There's a book, uh, Commentary on the Vimalakirti Sutra by Joan Sutherland. I don't know if anyone's seen it. She's a Buddhist teacher. <clears throat> um, but it says something like, we're moving with Vimalakirti toward living open-heartedly in the presence of suffering. When our orientation shifts in this way, we're beginning to process that it isn't going to be fully realized at the start. Compassion is at first a vow, an intention, a commitment. That's not just preparing for compassion. That's already compassion. 
as is working towards responding in ways that are helpful, regardless of how you feel or to whatever extent you can. The willingness to share whatever good you have, even without complete sympathy or understanding, is full-blown compassion because it is the good you have. And that's what full-blown means because it's as much as you can do. It's all of us. Vimala Kirti reminds us that compassion isn't a project of the ego, focused on reaping rewards of doing the right thing, but on sharing whatever it is that is good that we have, whatever skills and acts we have, over and over again. The good in us belongs not to ourselves, but to the world. It is this good in ourselves is a migratory bird that for a moment has come to rest in us, which we shelter and feed and send along the way. Uh, thank you. And, oh, I, and I, I wanted to just mention, I had a minister when I was uh, going to the, um, uh, the congregational, which is con- conflated with the United Church of Christ, which is conflated with the Unitarians and so on. And this minister always used to say, um, wisdom is the search for wisdom. And I like, you know, that I think applies here too. And Thank you for your wisdom and your search for wisdom. This is what we're all doing, even if we don't really know it. You know, our egos get in the way and say, oh, you're not good enough. You're not doing enough. That plastic bag washing, that's doing nothing. (laughs) I hope it's doing nothing. Because when we try to do something, then we're really in trouble. And I know our time is flying, and it's really a wonderful conversation, but I'm, I'm a little worried because I, I actually uh, contributed to the chant that we're chanting during service, and it's really long. People are going to be like, let me out of here. But anyway, uh, anything else before we move along to the rest of our program? Well, that's just in, in closing. Um, and this is in response to Jan. There's a, a wonderful article recently by the by Rebecca Solnit, great teacher, who is and writer is actually a practicing Buddhist in our tradition in our lineage, uh, talking about how despair is uh, not only not helpful but not realistic. There are, in terms of the environment, there have been many many scientific and, and cultural advances, so it's possible. That we can that we can uh, do something about the climate. Anyway, I can forward that article to anyone who wants. Just email me at infoandancientdragon.org. Thanks, Tygen. And thank you, Hogesu, for a really uh, helpful uh, talk, opening this all up. So thank you. And yes, we should probably close down now and have service. But thank you very much. Thank you all.